Before we get started in today's show, I want to tell you about Stamps.com, longtime sponsor of the BS Report. It's quick. It's convenient. More importantly, it's really, really easy to use. You do not have to go to the post office anymore. You can just stay home. Make your own office, your personal post office. You can avoid lines. You can avoid just standing there as somebody mails some package, some 79-year-old lady. Who needs that? Make your own mailing and shipping from your house. Stamps.com. Put in the top right of the site, BS. You'll get a deal and a scale and a whole bunch of other things. It's a great product. Uh, You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your computer and printer. Stamps.com will give you a digital scale. It will automatically calculate the exact postage for any letter or any package. They'll even help you choose the best class of mail. Wow. Why go to the post office? Just give it to the postman. Stamps.com. Check it out. The BS Report is a free-flowing conversation that occasionally touches on mature subjects. The BS Report. The BS Report with Bill Simmons. Welcome to the BS Report, taping this on a Tuesday in Southern California. And uh, we've had a lot of BS Reports lately. We went to NBA All-Star Weekend in New York City, and we taped uh, like 45 hours of podcasts. Not that many, but almost. We have a part one and a part two that already went up. Um, we also have the Grantland Oscar preview that is re-airing a bunch of times, but that's available on a podcast. But I could not resist doing a podcast with Jacko about the Yankees numbers. He's coming on later, the retired numbers. And now uh, the guy who wrote the SNL book and the ESPN book from the New York Times, Jim Miller. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. So Sunday night, 23 million people watched uh, SNL 40. I wrote my piece about it, uh, a quick reaction piece on Monday morning. I've been thinking about it even more since then. And then you see that number. It's going against Walking Dead. It's going against NBA All-Star. It's going against The Bachelor. It's going against CBS, HBO, Showtime, uh, all their Sunday night shows. 23 million people, and it kind of owned the night. And I wasn't surprised. Were you? No, not at all. I thought I thought it was a great number, but... Look, there had been a lot of anticipation, and when you get that many eras of the show together, multi-generations, you you got parents watching with their kids, you got, uh, it's a whole, you, you're covering all the all the demos. Right. And I wrote, I so my the, the thesis of my piece was basically, you know, people were complaining on the, about the show, I'm sure, on social media, and then the reviews afterwards were kind of up and down, and... Um, for me, I thought it was a spectacular night. It was totally uneven. It was imperfect, but, um, that also symbolized the show. And, um, I think when you have 200 celebrities and you have cast members from four generations or five generations who've been on something like 900 episodes of that show and you're trying to fit everyone in, it becomes like a dress rehearsal. You can't can't just cut sketches after the fact because they didn't work. You can't tell Bradley Cooper you don't need him for the Californian sketch because it's been cut. So it was always going to be imperfect. But I thought there's so many things I loved about it. Um, I just thought just fundamentally, and you were there, which is one of the reasons I wanted to call, um, just seeing everybody in one place was was amazing. Tell us what that was like. Well, I think, I mean, look, I, I looked around at the after party, which I thought was probably one of the most amazing after parties that existed in the history of SNL. And I dare say it's going to outshine any Oscar party this coming week. Wow. Uh, you just, only Lorne Michaels could have gotten those people together. 
there were politicians, there were, I mean, I was standing there, well, not to name drop, but like all of a sudden, Peyton and Eli are behind me, Derek Jeter's to your left, and then there's politicians, and there's Beyonce and Jay, I mean, you could go on and on and on, but it just shows the effect and how far SNL's permeated itself into the culture to have like a gathering like that, which was, you know, pretty amazing. And to your point about the show itself, I mean, it was such a huge triage challenge for Lauren because everybody, including Eddie Murphy, said yes. So it's not like, okay, well, we got 10 people who are saying yes, so let's just, you know, throw the show around those 10 people. Everybody said yes. So I know some people thought, like, the Californians were too long. Well, you know, it was a great delivery system to get other people into it. And, you know, you just you just have to do those things. It's it's very hard to say no to certain people. And I think Lauren did, you know, a really good job. Uh, the, the one thing that I guess was hard for people to wrap their minds around was Eddie because yeah. it was such a big deal for him to come back. And I was, I'm not giving away my age here, but I was at the 25th reunion and he wasn't there. And it was a big hole that he wasn't there because he's probably the most important cast member in the show's history. And so he came back this time and I think people expected him to do a little stand up or, you know, I mean, I guess he wasn't going to come out as Gumby or James Brown, but I think a lot of people were kind of disappointed that he didn't do more, but it still was great to have him there. Yeah, I wrote my piece that I wasn't ready to talk about it for 40 years, but I'm ready to talk about it now. I needed 24 hours to regroup. (laughs) A couple of theories. I'll just throw these at you, and then you can decide which one you like. My first theory, he had something prepared, came out, and either he froze or he punted or he just got afraid and just decided to just say nice things and get out as fast as possible. I think that's one possibility. Second possibility, he might genuinely feel like he just outgrew the show and that it's something that happened to him a long time ago when he was in his teens and his early 20s. And, you know, he he had this telling comment. He almost said it dismissively where he talked about, you know, when I was here 35 years ago. And it was kind of the way he said it just made me feel that he was kind of making the point like, look, man, you know, I'm in my 50s now. This was something I did way back when. So I think that was a possibility. And then the third possibility is I don't know if he trusts his comedy chops anymore because it's been so long since he was in front of an audience like that entertaining people. And I, the disappointing thing for me, just as the all-time Eddie fan, I thought with all the comedy chops that were getting thrown around in that show, um, and especially seeing how some people raise their games. And, like, you know, you had Dan Aykroyd, who's not the same guy he was 40 years ago, but he was gamely trying to get through the Bassomatic sketch again. And then you had Bill Murray from the original cast, who kind of owned the night for just uh, throwing the fastest fastball. Um, I thought Eddie's competitive juices would get going when he saw some of this other stuff. There's this great Twitter picture of Eddie actually in the background of the Bill Murray sketch. You could see Eddie kind of leaning over and watching Bill Murray. And when I saw that, I'm thinking, obviously, he's getting competitive with these guys a little bit, but the, he decided to punt anyway. So what was your theory on, on why he didn't do anything? I uh, Okay, so first of all, I don't think he was afraid. That's just not in Eddie's DNA. He's got a lot of hubris and confidence and everything else. I think it uh, – and I don't think it's that he doesn't trust his his instincts – I actually think that it's part of it is the actual competition part of it is that he decided that he's just 
so far above that that he doesn't even need to do it. I think he really felt like showing up and saying hello, and this reminds me of coming back to high school, was just enough for him. Right. Uh, he, he just, I mean, it's, it's another kind of, I don't think it's a Machiavellian ploy on his part to say, I'm on a whole different level than you guys because I don't even need to appear. But I don't think he was about to go and start, I mean, look, Jerry Seinfeld came out and did, you know, a little bit of stand-up. He's not going to go out and, like, go toe-to-toe with Seinfeld. He just, he thinks he's bigger than that. And and he doesn't want to, you know, kind of play that game. And and so I, I understand, I understand, I kept on thinking during the week, what is he going to do? You know, I just could not imagine him coming back as one of his characters. And so I thought he might come out and do a little stand-up, but, you know, he he clearly just, he wanted to say something from the heart and uh, and didn't want to didn't want to play in the arena. It was so a massive. It was, it was a massive mistake. It was a it was a huge mistake on his part. Yeah, it was um, frustrating. It was frustrating. Well, I thought the way they they brought him out, the position they put him in. If he wasn't going to do anything funny, just don't do it. Then just run. Just have him wave. Show show a quick retrospective of clips and have him wave from the crowd. But well, there, and there part were, of it was the Chris Rock build up to it. Yeah. So you, I mean, the whole time Chris was doing the introduction, I'm thinking, okay, wow, this is a this is a great lead up. Eddie's going to come and have to really smack it out of the park after this because Chris really, you know, he went deep. But I think it was all the more shocking after. And Chris's introduction was longer than Eddie's statement. Oh, it was like three times longer. Well, the <laughs> great thing about that show, and maybe he's the only one who's ever been on it who feels this way. Um, everybody feels like they were part of something and they were, you know, a utility player. You know, Hater always talked about how the people who, who have the most success on a show like SNL are the people that even if they're playing the waiter and they have one line, they kill that one line and they throw themselves into it. Eddie was the only one who transcended the show. And and I thought Chris Rock made a great point. He's the only one, he's the only cast member who hosted the show. He made 48 hours of trading places when he was on the show. He had, he, he was the only one who elevated kind of above where the show was when he was on it. And maybe that, maybe that leads to how Eddie handled that whole thing. But I just thought it would have been such a no brainer for him to, I mean, obviously it wasn't going to be in the Californian sketch, but you know, if they had done something like Jackie Rogers Jr.'s $20,000 jackpot watt or something instead of the Californians, which I actually think they should have done because it would have combined the different generations. But then you have, have Eddie as James Brown as one of the guests on that show or, you know, something like that. And you just ease him in and without like a lot of fanfare, I think he would have killed it. Or James um, Brown on Celebrity Jeopardy. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You could have done, I mean, the other thing though about Eddie on the show, by the way, was there was a great tradition already established that there were collective sketches and Eddie did more one person sketches than probably any cast member in the history of SNL because he, he could just carry he could carry a sketch by himself and the writers were focused on him and you really didn't need anybody else at that point so right. i mean Piscopo, his that was experience it. at snl was totally singular well he also could have come out and then raheem abdul muhammad on weekend update you know like the, there were moves Absolutely. he could have made he could have been in a short film he could have been in the sandler fallon thing just for 20 seconds i think it was really strange that he didn't participate at all and I can't begin to uh, put myself in his head, but it was the biggest. It was the, for me. It was the biggest frustration of 
the evening. And I'm sure uh, I did not ask Lauren Michaels this, but I'm sure that at some point they said to him, what would you like to do? Or we have right. a couple thoughts for you. Would you like to be in this? Would you like to be in this? And, you know, I guess after you get no, 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 and I don't want to do this, and this is what I'm comfortable in, then at that point, you just carve out the that for the show. You just carve that piece out for him, and you do it on his terms. Because if you didn't do it on his terms, then you'd have another drama, and he wouldn't be there. Well, I would I would put myself in whatever the top percentile is for SNL junkies, because I grew up with the show. I thought one of the fascinating under the radar subplots of that show it was kind of how marginalized the Ebersol era was. And I'm not even, did they even really mention or acknowledge Dick Ebersol in three and a half hours? No, no. They had a, they had a slide of them uh, for the TV show. They had a slide of them. Um, just a slide. Yeah. That's it though. Right. They just showed a slide. Hey, thanks well, Dick Ebersol for saving the show. Dick, Dick was in Hawaii. I mean, he, he, I was, you know, I was sorry that Dick wasn't there and a part of it. He's after all the guy who, suggested and hired Lorne Michaels uh, when they were first developing the show. And then he, after, you know, he took over as executive producer for several seasons. But yeah, no, well, there was some, there was some credit hogging though. Wasn't there like, uh, I think Lauren didn't he always kind of bristle because Ebersaw maybe took a little too much credit for that 1975, how the show kind of unfolded. You know, I mean, look, 1974 and 1975 were definitely, they both, played roles. And I think there's been, you know, some discussion about that, but look, when, when Dick was injured in the plane crash, Lauren was right by his side. And I think that the two of them have, you know, have a, have a good relationship now, but I do think the, look, the Ebersol years were tough and the Domanian year was rough and the Michael O'Donoghue period was rough. Yep. So people forget that. I mean, it, we're here 40 years later because Eddie saved the show during that period and there was there was a lot of doubt about whether or not the show was going to continue from 1980, even through the first year that Lauren got back, because 85 was Lauren's toughest year, I would say. Uh, yep. That first, that for every turn, that cast was tough and the show was rough. And uh, so it's not like, you know, somebody pushed a button and all of a sudden said SNL's, you know, going to be on NBC for as long as it wants to be. Uh, there was a, there were a lot of sketchy years, so. Well, one of my frustrations with the show, and this, I mean, this is a very minor nitpick, but I, I did think it skewed a little bit too heavily toward people from the last 12, 13 years. Armisen was in two different sketches. Armisen didn't mean nearly as much to SNL as a whole as Piscopo did. Piscopo was the number two guy in that show for four or five years when it was trying to stay in the air, you know? And I was glad they brought him out and he did Sinatra. And actually, thought it was really cool to see an older Piscopo playing the older Sinatra, who's finally the right age to do it. But, you know, I I, I think uh, I did think it skewed toward the Fallon generation, the show. Maybe they did that intentionally because, um, you know, they're, they're trying to get the biggest rating they can. And those are the people that, that they remember. But um, I felt well, like it was about 30% light on the uh, Piscopo Eddie generation. Well, to your point, though, I also think that Fallon himself was like a tsunami that just both at the show and then clearly at the after party, I, I was just stunned at the after party. Uh, Fallon was the biggest blip on the radar. Uh, when you think about it, it could have been, we could be talking now, and we could have said Billy Murray took over the night or Justin yep. Timberlake took over the night, Steve Martin took over the night. Maybe it was because of the force of the opening 
you know, that he did with Justin, but it just seemed that Jimmy, Jimmy's stature grew as it, that night, and certainly uh, he was in the driver's seat at the after party. This is a this is a big night for Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, we talked. You and I talked about that on the phone yesterday. That was one of my biggest surprises from the night. Was that he, I kind of left the whole night, and I wasn't at the after party, which is one of the reasons I want to call you because I want to find out what the after party was like. Um, just felt like you know to open the show with Jimmy Fallon. I thought was a little symbolic. At the end of the night, he runs on the stage as they pull Lorne up. It's this emotional Mr. Holland's opus moment. And he's in the middle and he's getting his just due. And all of a sudden Fallon comes running up to stand next to him and hug him. And he's next to him for the credits. I thought he was attention hogging. Um, you seem to think that that's probably how Lorne wants it because he's anointed Fallon as kind of the torchbearer for, um, of all the first 40 years at SNL, Fallon's kind of the guy. And then the after party kind of reinforced that. So you feel like the closing credits thing was actually intentional. I don't know if that moment was chore—you know choreographed in advance to that degree, but yeah. I think that it's not surprising that Jimmy was front and center. He is the, in some ways, he's the connective tissue between the past and the future, even yeah. though there's nothing on in Lauren's world that matters more to him than SNL. I think the fact that the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon is the success that it is, uh, I mean, it means a great deal to Lauren. It's even more important to the company than SNL is. And, uh, you know, so there's nothing wrong with putting that guy up front. And not to mention the fact that they really do have an amazing relationship. There There were some really tough years for Jimmy Fallon. And Lauren stood by him, and Lauren threw out this idea of him hosting, and uh, you know before Jimmy even thought about it. So uh, you know, I think I, I'm not surprised by it, but I will say Jimmy Jimmy rose to the occasion. I mean, particularly at the at the after party, it wasn't like he let anybody down. What was for the three and a half hour telecast only? What was your most pleasant surprise? Um. I guess I, I thought it was. I thought some things were handled really nice. I thought the memoriams were handled really nice, and I liked the idea that there were multi generational things. Even though the weekend update portion of it, Ugh. you know, it probably didn't operate on all eight cylinders. I, I loved seeing Jane there with Amy and Tina, and uh, Billy coming on to sing was just fantastic. Bill Murray to coming on. So I, I mean, I I thought there were enough things along the way that that made it just compelling. Uh, I don't. It was I think one of the reasons how you got to 23.1 million viewers was I think that people understand that. Wait a second, this California sketch is too long, but that's all right. There'll be a commercial, and then who knows what's going to come up next? Yeah. So you know, there's always that great surprise around the corner, and with the cast that they had to uh, operate from, it was usually the case. What was your biggest non-Eddie disappointment of the night? I, I'd have to say, I, I guess it was the weekend update, only because I thought it was a little rough for Emma Stone and Melissa McCarthy yeah. to do those imitations. I just, I don't know. I know they're tributes, I guess, at that point, but that's like climbing Everest on a cold day in your shorts trying to do... Gilda Radner and Chris right. Farley. Um, I don't know. That's that seemed 
really hard to me and it just it, you know for me it just didn't it just didn't work yeah i was confused why they didn't just have them do one-liners with weekend updates and then bring back some old characters from over the years like stefan could have been, come back for a minute that would have been the perfect eddie murphy raheem abdul muhammad spot I think exactly. that would have brought the house down. I really do. I think it would have brought the house down because it wasn't one of his – he has all these famous characters from that era that people talk about now, like Buckwheat and Gumby and all those. But Raheem Abdul-Muhammad was the character he did the most on the show, and that was the one that was his breakthrough character the first time he really owned the show, his first season. And I think that would have been perfect, even if it was And for by the a way, minute. that's a character that really is kind of an interesting character to explore nowadays. Oh, Totally. I mean, yeah, totally. I would have loved for him to have come on and talked about Obama. I mean, who knows? I mean, there are lots of things he could have he could have said from that character's point of view. Now uh, we haven't heard from him for a while, and I think I think it would have been hilarious. Look, there have been episodes of SNL where there have been more guests coming through the side door on Weekend Update than there were during the special. But you know, again, it all comes down to time. You don't have a, you don't have a lot of time for everything, but. And it's easy right. to Monday morning quarterback, but the truth is I, I just wish there would have been a lot more guest appearances on Weekend Update than invitations. And uh, you and I were both surprised that they didn't that they did all these different montage bits, right? But they didn't do a montage bit of 40 years of musical acts, which the more I think about it could almost be its own show. I mean, that could be a two-hour show by itself just through the years, all these musical acts, because – and I wrote this on Monday, so I don't mean to repeat the point, but it's it's one of the things that makes the show special for me is it has a habit of just catching all these music acts right at the apex of when they were taking off, you know? And you could go from the 70s all the way through recently. If you see somebody on SNL for the first time, that's usually right at probably their favorite point of their career when they're heading into another level and happening for them and SNL is like kind of the cherry in the ice cream sundae of everything that's going on in their life and to me that's almost its own show or even established groups that come back and knock it out of the park like you know you didn't even realize they still had it in them I I remember I was at the show when Jimmy Page did with Puff Daddy uh, the game from I mean he was incredible and just to see him live like that it was amazing I uh I interviewed Chris Martin for the book, and he talked about when Coldplay would come on SNL. It was, I mean, they they made it so special, and it was so special for them, even more so sometimes than a concert. I mean, it just, you're right. I mean, the musical appearances on SNL are, are fantastic. I know that I had once suggested that they do a big DVD about it, and there's clearance issues because of yeah. uh, After and stuff like that, but... I could have definitely used a couple more, uh, definitely a couple more appearances. I think uh, I think that was U2's last great moment, actually, when they came on. I think it was Amy Poehler and Seth Meyers. It was during their first season, and it was the last time U2 just kind of demolished everybody. And and you know, Bono was walking around the the set, which nobody had really done before in that show in all those years, and. Uh, and was just out of his mind great. And they've had moments like that. They've also had disappointing moments. Like I think everybody with the show probably feels the greatest miss of, of all time in the history of the show is when the Rolling Stones were on that one year. 
and Belushi took them out all week. And by the time they did yeah. the show, their voices were shot. They but were definitely that was running like, on empty. Yeah, that was the show when it had never been bigger and the Rolling Stones when they had never been bigger. And they actually came on the show. And Belushi just kind of uh, – maybe it was a competitive move by Belushi. I know, but three <laughs> years ago – maybe was it three or four years ago – uh, Paul McCartney came on and did a day in the life. It was spectacular. It was yeah. just unbelievable. Better than than he's done in concert. It was it was really special. So, you know, look, they could have they could have filled the, all three hours with musical appearances, but uh, you know, definitely could have used one more. Maybe one of the things I thought was really cool about the show was how involved Paul Simon was, and that was another one of those hidden things, like for DSNL junkies. That's he hosted the second show. He became Lauren's best friend, and he's always been kind of drifting in and out of the show over the years. He's kind of aged with the show. He had the best moment in the history of the show, which was 9-11, uh, the first show afterwards when he sent the boxer. Um, and then he was really, really ingrained in this final show. He was He didn't just come on twice and sing two different times, but Miley Cyrus sang one of his songs. Um that didn't surprise you, I bet. No, but I, I have to say, she did a great job. She did. She did. But a great, was it, do you feel like Paul job. Simon was kind of Paul Simon was kind of the unknown SNL employee these last forty years, right? He is. He's absolutely the glue. And there have been so many times when, particularly, I think that first season when maybe somebody didn't show up and there was a quick call to Paul, or they just needed a little boost. Uh, Lauren produced the Simon and Garfunkel concert in Central Park, which was an interesting thing for him to do. And I mean, I their that. relationship has been very, very close through the years. And I think, you know, it's funny to think about Paul Simon as a B as well. I mean, he was game for right. a, lot, a lot of a lot of different things uh, through the years. Right. So he wasn't after at party. the after party, though. He was not at the after party. Oh, interesting. Maybe he's maybe it was past his bedtime. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I did not because I don't know if you want to get into that now, but Jimmy called yes. up. Yeah, it was it was incredible because Ackroyd, like he did on the 25th, kind of grabbed the microphone at the after party first and he started playing. And then it just became this cavalcade of craziness. Uh, you know, everybody wanted to. Paul McCartney came up and then and but Jimmy Fallon had the microphone and kept on calling people up, and Taylor Swift came up. I didn't even know Paul McCartney was singing backup vocals to Shake It Off. How, how did Paul McCartney wow. know the lyrics to Shake It Off? I mean, that was that was crazy. And then the B-52s came up, and Elvis Costello, which is ironic because he was banned from the show for many years. For <laughs> doing, so Elvis Costello was up there, Michael Bolton, uh, you know, it was all this. And then, the, but the best moment, it was, and it was really... Fallon's moment, he Dave Chappelle said to him, "Prince is in the room. Prince is here. Prince is here." And Jimmy Fallon just like called him out, just said, "Prince, you're in the room. You got to come up." And I will tell you, after all those people that had been on stage, and I mean, obviously the crowd was into it, but when Prince came through the crowd, the the kind of the seas parted, and right. everybody. And I was looking around. I mean. There was Beyonce, Jay-Z, Rihanna. Uh, I mean, everybody came closer to the stage, and Prince got up and 
his first words were dearly inebriated, and then just uh, played Let's Get Crazy, uh, Let's Get Crazy, and it was unbelievable. That's it awesome. Was, it was it was pretty amazing. They really should have uh, they really should have filmed that or taped that, I should say, and uh, that would have been like bonus footage for 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 something because uh, it, it and it was pretty good too. All of it was completely unrehearsed, and you could see people trying to you know find the chords or keep up with somebody, but. They, it all worked out, and uh, Questlove was supposed to be DJing, and he was like on hold for like this whole time because all these live performances were going on. Well, I was going to ask you, did did uh, did they tape this? Did this just vanish in the thin air? Is it on YouTube? And like, were people filming it with their cell phones, or is this oh, when, just there's no record of it? Yeah, when Prince when Prince was up there, you couldn't even you could barely see the stage because everybody had their cell phones. Right, and uh, it was funny because I looked over to my left, and Peyton Manning and Eli Manning were standing there, just like with their jaws on the ground. Jeter was there. I mean, people were. Prince has this ability to just reduce everyone to like Gaga. Right. I mean, it's just uh, it, it was. Uh, so I hope somebody did. Uh, I I don't know if they formed. I don't think I didn't see any cameras set up in the room, which was, you know, kind of a loss. It was uh, very special, but I'm sure a lot of people have it on their cell phones. So you said, I can't remember if you said this during this podcast or when we talked last night, um, when they did the SNL 25, that kind of became Aykroyd's event. He be, kind of came, be, he became the guy. And, and this time around SNL 40, it was Fallon's event. Um, so what was Aykroyd's role in this whole thing? Well, only in the sense, I remember at the 25th that there was just, I guess, a DJ and Ackroyd was lamenting the fact that there wasn't live music. So legend has it. I'd heard at the time that he gave Annie Lennox and Dave, the Eurythmics, $25,000 to start playing. Uh, they wound up playing that night. I don't know if it's true that he, wow. he gave them the money. But, I mean, he started things off. He got on stage, and he started playing the harmonica, and McCartney came up. and But then Fallon kind of took over. But, but Danny was definitely the... Uh, the first person to grab the mic and get, get it all started. So th- another thing that jumped out at me about uh, SNL 40 was the the last couple years of people just paled in comparison from a star power standpoint to the hater, Wig, Armisen, Sudeikis, all those people. And, you know, it's going to take time. And the show's a little bit in the spot it was in the mid-80s, I think. But who do they think is going to be the guy who's going to be the next guy who comes out and kind of owns that star power standpoint? I think I said this to you before, but the history of SNL reads like an EKG. And so there are championship seasons, there's transition seasons, there's really, really difficult years. Um, You can't lose to Dacus, Will Forte, Kristen Wiig, Bill Hader. I, I mean, Fred, and Kristen and all those people and not have it dramatically affect the show. I think that right now it's interesting because the women I think are doing, are doing pretty good. I mean, there's some really talented Kate McKinnon, of course, is, is really talented, but on the guy side, a lot of those guys like Keenan and Bobby are on their way out, so to speak. Yeah. I think they're, they're, you know, kind of thinking about what's next. So, I'm a big Pete Davidson fan. Me too. I think he's got, he had one of the great opening moments and, you know, recent years when he came on, he just exploded. I think the first time he was on yeah. and, 
I think he's got a lot of potential. The, the problem is, you know, what kind of vehicles do you give him? And how do you write for him? How does he write for himself? you got to make sure because otherwise you wind up with a Chris Rock situation where you basically, you know, Chris Rock on SNL was like a Porsche going 40. Yeah. Uh, you know, he just never had the the sketches or the moments that showed his brilliance. And that could happen with Pete. Hope it doesn't because I think the show really needs him. Well, the history of the show says that like somebody like there's two types of cast members, right? There's like kind of the individual power person. I think Sandler was like this. Sandler wasn't a performer who's going to throw himself in every sketch and who can play everybody from the waiter to the game show host to whoever you need. He was kind of, he was always Adam Sandler. And I think Pete Davidson's like that. I think Kyle Mooney's like that. Like most of the guys they have on the show are kind of the individual talent types. And then you look at like Bobby Moynihan and Taron Killam and Kate McKinnon and Cecily Strong, I think would be the four that could kind of blend in. And they're kind of the old school SNL. I can do anything you need me to do guys um, and girls. But I think if you drift too far toward the individual performer type, you end up in a scenario where they were in, in that, in the season that everybody hated in 95. Where it's just too yeah, many individual because, performers, you know, and you don't have the glue people. So well, the I great thing about Phil Hartman and Will Ferrell was yeah. that they were these people that you, I mean, scenes just got better because they were in there. They could take average material and make it fantastic, but they were willing, you know, in addition to their great impersonations, they were willing to get into these sketches and, and elevate them. And so, you know, we've had lots of impersonations, impersonators on the show and we've had lots of people who are in sketches it's hard to do both but right now i think the show the cast really needs that that kind of person who's going to just throw themselves into every sketch that they're in and make it as great as possible and not make it an individual thing because there's just not enough there's just not a room for that and the show doesn't really thrive on on that all the time well and then there's also something to be said for just being fundamentally funny in the room where you know, you always hear those guys talk about Farley in the early 90s where he was just always the funniest guy. And you had all these different guys on that show during that era who were really funny in their own retrospect. But when Farley was there, he owned the room, you know, and he and he was always going to be funnier than whoever else. And he was always going to push it as far as he could possibly go. And now you have people on the show. and Maybe this is more what the state of comedy in 2015 is who people who know they're being funny the whole time who are intentionally funny and not that kind of own the room funny. I think Bobby Moynihan's the only one where he'll kind of push it, you know, he'll push the envelope and he, he can kind of get there to some degree, but they don't have that force of nature cast member, which is usually dangerous for the show. They used to and, call it the alpha male. Cause that's, yeah. you know, when, when Phil left, uh, a lot of people said, who's going to be our, our alpha male. And then lo and behold, will appeared. Uh, it's, it turns out it's pretty important. Right. This is the only time I remember two straight transition seasons. This season hasn't been bad, but it feels this like last year was a lot a better than last season. Yes, they need and to they need to figure out the weekend update thing though, because they, this is now two years where that that segment has not worked, and I don't really tough. know what they but do. The other thing that they have to figure out is I, I haven't kind of done the the analysis, so to speak, but the balance between tape pieces and actual live sketches is a tad askew right now. And uh, if I had the time, I'd actually go back and look at it because I think the amount 
and and this is kind of an outgrowth of digital shorts even after Akiva Yorma and Andy left because there's still a lot of a lot of videotape pieces but uh, some of the there've been several episodes where the strongest stuff has been in the can and right so you always want you know there to be a lot of great live sketches and wonderful live moments and then the the digital short so to speak or the the videotape piece or whatever is like the cherry on top but i there have been a couple there have been a couple episodes where the videotape stuff was far and beyond the best stuff in the episode and you just got to be careful to, to maintain that balance it is saturday night live after all yeah i don't know what you do with that and it, it's almost like where comedy's headed right because it's it's you see it happen with late night now you have all these prepackaged kind of bits that are almost ready to be microwaved the next day on the internet on youtube or the internet or wherever you want to do it and um I think everybody on TV who produces comedy is struggling with that balance is. Well, the bowlers and the twin bed, my twin bed. I mean, those two video, I mean, those had probably more buzz about them than a lot, than most of the live sketches, uh, you know, during those times. So I think it's just something to be wary of. And, you know, you just can't, you you just can't lose that live aspect of it. I'd be really worried. But, you know, think, the entire time of the show, Lauren was always fascinated with going outside the studio for short films and tape bits and all that stuff. Like this was when he was doing that in 75 and 76, 77, nobody on TV was even thinking that way, you know? So he, he's always clearly been a little fascinated. Maybe there's some sort of strategic value toward removing the pressure from the studio for a couple of minutes and then coming oh, back no, to absolutely. it. Oh, no, absolutely. It's just I mean? a question of magnitude. That's all. Right. I, I mean, look. You don't want to swing it the Gary right way. Weiss and Schiller and Albert Brooks and I mean, there's always been there's always been fantastic uh, yeah. pre-recorded stuff. But I just I just think when you have probably you know three pieces, uh, commercial parody, a what let's for lack of a better term, another digital short and another parody yeah. uh, on video, and then the live sketches aren't that great. That's when you start to like worry about the balance. Well, and then Charlie Pierce made this point. We were emailing about the show yesterday, and it's like at some point you've done all the ideas, and now every idea is a variation of an idea that I've already seen. You know, and that's and where like, Lauren is actually somebody... pretty. He's pretty good though on for either Tuesday nights or Wednesdays for table read, or because yeah, we yeah we tried that. You can't do it that way. You gotta that never works right. that way. I mean, he and he's got an amazing memory about that stuff. Uh, right. That's really helpful, and it saves, particularly on Tuesday nights, which is the long writing night. It saves people a lot of time, newcomers and people who haven't tried a certain kind of sketch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just you gotta stay away from doing it this way because this way never works. It's um, yeah. It's, we can't do that because in 1988 we did that with that was my right. best attempt at a learn Michaels. But yeah, he does. It does help to have somebody who remembers just about everything that's ever happened on the show, and and. You know, I don't think Lauren's going to be there for SNL 50. I can't see him still producing the show 10 years from now, which I think is one of the reasons the SNL 40 was, was special, at least for me. Is They pulled him up on the stage. Like, you know, I he'll probably be there five, three years, four years, five years. I don't know, but it won't be 10. It's not going well, to be then there that means that the 82. Next, if that's true, then the next great SNL celebration will be the SNL Lauren Farewell celebration. 
And yes. I'm sure everybody in the audience and everybody at the party afterwards would come back for that. Look, there's no guarantee that the show would even continue on without Lauren. I mean, I believe that as long as Lauren wants to do it, the show is safe. But there isn't a successor in place. There isn't even an obvious person to take over. I think the show still makes money for NBC, but yeah. it will be, you know, I, it will at least be a decision that uh, Steve Burke and others will have to make at the time to, to see whether it continues. But I, I definitely can imagine a primetime special then uh, talking about, you know, saying, saying goodbye to Lauren on Saturday Night Live. Mm. I, I hate thinking about it, but when you say primetime special, I think after with that rating that they just got, it might be a primetime week. It just <laughs> might be a seven-day event. They, well, I mean, especially with the way NBC is going, it might just they might devote the whole month of November to it. You know, there have been times in NBC's history, and you can watch where they've thrown SNL into primetime, and it usually delivers, but nothing like this. I mean, I tweeted last week that I, you know, I thought SNL forty was going to be the Super Bowl of comedy because it was going to be three and a half hours and a lot of people, a lot of stars and a lot of good stuff. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't expect that, that rating. That was, that's a no. huge number. Not with all this. I mean, walking dead is just this chainsaw that just rips through anything in its wake. This is the first time anyone actually stood up to walking dead, much less all the other stuff going on. Uh, Jim Miller, you can read his SNL book, which he updated within, <clears throat> excuse me, which he updated within the last year paperback, whole bunch of new stories in there. And what are you working on now? An autobiography on John Walsh? What's going, what's going on? What's, what's uh, hardcover? I, I, though the uh, live from New York was in hardcover, but uh, I'm actually going to, yes, I'm going to do a nice goodbye piece about Walsh leaving ESPN after so many years. And uh, then I'm going to uh, crank out the uh, script for the ESPN movie. Oh, I forgot about that. So that's actually happening. Focus. Focus features. I hope it's a franchise. I'm excited to be featured in like the fifth one. <laughs> Played by Jason Bateman. ESPN 5. <laughs> what is it with Jason Bateman? Dan Patrick said yesterday, I hope Jason Bateman plays me. I mean, he must be everybody's, uh, I guess, he's, he's, everybody's every man. He's, congenial. he's a congenial, likable guy. That's who you he want. Is. That's who you want playing you. You want you want Jason Bateman. So the ESPN is. movie is happening, and you're writing the script. Well, I mean, I'm writing the script. I hope it happens. You know, when we're in a dark theater with popcorn, I'll believe it. But you know, it's a nice first step. Got a producer. You can't have a movie without a script. Yep. So All right. we'll see. Um, well, it's. Uh, I'm, I look forward to whatever you read about John Walsh and uh, who, obviously. I loved a great deal. Uh, thank you for coming on. I'm glad you had fun at the SNL 40. Thanks for telling the stories, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to call my buddy Jacko because the Yankees announced that they were retiring three numbers that I'm not positive should have been retired, and I want to get his thoughts. Diehard Yankee fan, my buddy from college. And uh, if you follow me on Instagram, you can see weird photos I put up of us from college every once in a while, including one I did this weekend. Anyway, let's give him a ring. Complex litigation. This is John. Johnny. What's up, buddy? How are you? It's a very, very subdued greeting. You're right. Well, I'm worried about you know. There's only a few things you care about in life. One <laughs> of them is the Yankees. 
and now they're disgracing the, the center field with just retiring it. Is your jersey getting retired? Let's ask that first. <laughs> they're going to retire a phone for my podcasting work. I mean, you had some great podcasts during the 2009 run. Maybe they, maybe you're qualified. <laughs> At the rate they're going, I, I can't be too far behind, I don't think. So they're retiring Pettit, Posada, yeah. and Bernie Williams. They're retiring those numbers. Yes. Who is retired right now? Uh, Billy Martin. Okay. Babe, Babe Ruth. Yep. Lou Gehrig. DiMaggio. Mantle. Barra. Dickey. Roger Maris. Phil Rizzuto. Thurman Munson. Whitey Ford. Don Mattingly. Elston Howard. Casey Stengel. Reggie Jackson and Ron Guidry. And, of course, every team rightly, has retired uh, Jackie Robinson's number. Well, if Gator and Reggie Jackson are on there... Yeah, I mean, so many I of think these you're are already a, a farce. I mean, yeah. as I tweeted out, I mean, the layups are obviously... If I was personally retiring num- Yankees numbers, I would do, obviously, Ruth Gehrig, DiMaggio Mantle. I would do Bill Dickey, Yogi Berra. I would do Whitey Ford... I would do Thurman Munson because of the way that he died and what he meant to the Yankees as the captain. I think that's a fitting tribute to him. Maybe not because of accomplishments on the field, but in, in a larger sense, he's worthy. And then I would do Jeter and Mariano. I think that's the pantheon right there. If, and if you want to give a plaque, you know, because Yankees have guys with plaques now. They have a plaque for Miller Huggins. Well, now they have a bunch. There's one for Allie Reynolds. Yeah. And, you know, they just did some for Tino and Paul O'Neill, which as much as I like those guys, I don't think they're worthy of really having plaques. And I love Paul O'Neill, but I don't think they're plaque worthy. But I would mm-hmm. give plaques to P- Pettit and Posada and Bernie Williams, but I don't think they're number retired worthy. And they did guys like Roger Maris because of the 61 homers and 60, but um, I mean, 61, but um I don't think he's worthy of having his number retired because, I mean, he's better known as a St. Louis Cardinal. The Celtics had this problem. Oh, yeah. And this was a Red Arback just would retire anyone's number. To like the Jim Laskutoff, they retired his yeah. nickname because 18 was already retired, right? Right. And then, uh, you know, God bless DJ. I love DJ. But I think he was only in the team for five or six years. They retired his number. Uh, and then the wheels really came off in the mid-2000s. Wick bought the team and just wanted to retire somebody's number, so they retired Cedric Maxwell's number. And that's when it really became ridiculous. Right. But, uh, like, Satch Sanders was retired. Don Nelson's retired. So it's almost like teams do it as an excuse to have a night. Well, that's what it really is. I mean, this smacks of Randy Levine, who's the Yankees president. And this is, he likes to have, you know, ceremonies and moments and days. And and because there's no championship out there on the horizon in the foreseeable future, you have a tendency to relive your past. I, I get all that. And they want to sell tickets and have big events and big days. They make money on having a, you know, Bernie Williams Day, obviously. I get all that, but it, it really becomes a farce. And what it's right. akin to, really, is in the, is the Red Sox every six months running the 2004 team out there when they go through a 10-game losing streak. You know, they celebrate the eight-and-a-half-year anniversary of the 2004 World Series. <laughs> they, bring out Pedro, the- they bring out Pedro and, uh, and Millar, and the crowd gets all fired up. I mean, it's ridiculous. The re- retiring numbers should be reserved for the, for the best of the best. 
I love that you had to pull the Red Sox into this somehow. Well, like, that's what like really stuck Sox... in, I didn't mean to throw you under the bus there, but that was what really stuck in my mind. Remember a couple of years ago when they had that disastrous season and they brought back, like, it was the eighth anniversary of the 2014. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in August, because it's like bread and circuses in the Roman times. Let's, let's make everybody forget the awful thing they're seeing on the field now and relive the memories of 2004. Well, in, in their defense, the Red Sox hadn't exploited anything going on with the team financially in like three months. <laughs> in so, like 10 minutes, right? Right. So they had to do something. They had already opened up all the bars around the area. Uh, so – I mean, are Yankee fans excited for these three nights? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I tweeted out what I just said about who I think should be right. retired numbers, and I got a lot of agreement. And, I mean, I thought I'd get some pushback from younger fans saying and, – and I'm finding myself a little bit surprised by it because yesterday when I heard about it, about certainly Pettit and, and Posada, you know, they're part of the core four. I always assumed that, yeah, they're going to retire all those numbers. And, and people forget what a you know good Yankee Bernie Williams was and – it was the bridge from the Mattingly years to the um, core four years. But I don't know. The more I thought about it, I'm like, I'm just not sure that Bernie Williams and Posada and Pettit are Pantheon guys. At least with well, Bernie and Posada, they played their whole career as Yankees. You know, Pettit was not a full time, not a full career Yankee. He went to Houston for a couple of years. He's a core four guy. So I get, I get you can work your way around that. And I'm, I'm willing to be convinced on the core four, but I don't know. I just think that Jeter and Rivera are so transcendent beyond Posada and Pettit and Bernie Williams that they're they're worthy. And you know, it gets to be a, it gets to be farcical at some point where everybody on the Yankees, the active players, they're going to be like number seventy five. It's going to look like a football team. It's going to look like the for love of the game baseball scenes. <laughs> exactly. Here comes number seventy eight. Exactly. Exactly. So it's. At a certain point, it gets to be kind of and, – and what it really does is it, it dilutes the guys that are already there because obviously, you know, Mantle and and um, DiMaggio and Ruth and Garrick are no-brainers. It's it's But then you're, they share the stage with Phil Rizzuto. Yeah. I mean – Well, for, he's there for the announcing part too, right? Yeah, but they retired his number. I mean they, they could have done like the Celtics did the Johnny Most thing where they retired his microphone. You could have done that for Phil because – I know he won the MVP at some point in the, I think in the late forties, but you know, Phil Rizzuto, he, he doesn't even deserve to be in the hall of fame. God bless him. He got in cause he had so many friends on the veterans committee. He doesn't deserve to have his number retired. Don't baseball teams have to retire somebody's number when they make the hall of fame. Cause that's I don't what know the if Red that's Sox like did. a hard and fast rule. I know that was yeah. always the Red Sox rule that they would only retire numbers of guys that were in the hall of fame. Or, and white guys. That we'd only <laughs> retire white guys. And then Jim Rice broke the bear. <laughs> Oh, the Red Sox are the best. I'll never forgive Bernie Williams, and I hope it rains on Bernie Williams' night because he flirted Bernie, with the Red Sox. Yeah, he put on a nice little nightgown and tried to get a little frisky with the Red Sox, right. but he was just trying to make the Yankees jealous. I know what you did, Bernie Williams. Nobody will forget. Yes, he had like an eighty-nine million dollar contract in hand from them or something, didn't he? And he sure they did. Went back to the Yankees, and they gave him eighty-nine and a half or something. Yeah, Bernie spent the night in the fantasy suite with the Red Sox, and he and he gave it up. And then the <laughs> next day, decided the, decided that uh, we weren't worthy, and he voted for so and he and he gave the rose to somebody else. I appreciate it. <laughs> understandable, understandable. It was an overnight date. He can't do that test. Uh, yeah, I, look, it it just to me, it's like with a retired number. Like I went to a, you know, I go to all these LA Kings games. Right. By the way. The LA Kings, like, shh, LA Kings are coming on. Just being 
just keep it quiet. I want to go to playoff games. So I'm actually rooting for them like they're a Boston team at this point. But <laughs> a month ago, they had Rob Blake night. <laughs> and it was like, got this email. Everybody's got to get there early for Rob Blake night. And you get in your seats by 630 for the festivities to begin for Rob Blake night. See, and they retired like Rob the Blake's LA, number. A franchise like the LA Kings, though, you know, I know they've had success in the past couple of years, but they don't have a lot to celebrate in their history. So you, you mean, want to have a They just won two Blake, cups in three years. That. They What's just won two cups. They won two cups in three years. I know. I just said they've had recent good history. So you think they That's should be beyond than that good. now? Uh, you know, I would the, say the that fun- there's, there's two LA Kings that should be re- number that should be retired. Marcel Dion and Wayne Gretzky. I think yeah, that's well, the end of the conversation, no? And Rogi Vachon. Okay, yes, all right. Three numbers He's that should in be retired. There. Uh, Luke Robitaille's in there. All right, okay, There's four. four. He, put up big, he put up big stats. Uh, they have a couple other ones. The funny thing about Rob Blake was he he went to Colorado, and he was at Colorado for a while, and he won a cup there. And apparently he won the Norris Trophy one year, too. It was one of those things where, as the case was being made to me by the people in my section, I was <laughs> kind of getting it. talked into it. Yeah, a little bit. I was like, all right, Rob Blake. Um, you, let's left, just say, you left having bought a Rob Blake jersey by the time we yeah, were done. Totally. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm laminating my Rob Blake night tickets. <laughs> These things might be worth something someday. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's the thing is the you know it was a it, they they played it up the ducks were playing the kings that night and it was Rob Blake night and it became kind of an event which is I'm sure why they did it so I'm sure with the Yankees you have these three nights that are events I'm not positive they needed to do all three in the same year maybe they could have had done one a year for the next three years or something well they're probably trying to they're probably trying to you know turn away attention, divert attention away from A-Rod as much as possible. So they figured, let's mm. get our money's worth on that the first year he's back. So then they'll save, Maybe, G, they'll save Jeter and Rivera for next year, the final year of his contract. They should have A-Rod night where they just buy his contract out as the crowd goes crazy. <laughs> they open up the outfield wall and just point. He has to walk out in shame out into the street <laughs> as the crowd erupts. <laughs> He thinks it's going to be A-Rod night, like he's going to get honored for passing Willie Mays or whoever he's going to pass next, and instead it's the buyout. He's out. Leave just, right now. Take your uniform off. Take it off. They just come out and set his contract on fire on, on the pitcher's mound. <laughs> Crowd's going crazy. <laughs> Chanting Randy Levine's name. Right. I love the I love the A-Rod story more than life itself. It's the best. I love the fact that he wanted to do a press conference, and the Yankees were like, not on our watch. You'll not give a press conference while we're here. They well, wouldn't let he, him do anything. This is breaking news. I just got this on my phone before you called me that uh, he mm. issued a handwritten apology today. And he apologized to, to the Steinbrenner family, the Yankees, and the fans, and Major League Baseball and the Players Association. And he said he appreciated the opportunity that the Yankees afforded him that they were going to make Yankee Stadium available to him for a press conference. But he's turned that down because the next time he appears in pinstripes, uh, it's at the or uh, next time he appears at Yankee Stadium, it should be in pinstripes doing his job on the field. Oh, we're on to the season, Bill. On to the on to the season. Wow. <laughs> I, well, the we're not best here to talk can... about the past. Everybody's apologized, made up. We're on to the season. I've been thinking about this since the last time we talked about it. It makes the most sense for them to designate him for assignment. 
have him go through waivers because nobody will pick him up. And what's your Triple A team? The uh, Scranton Wilkes Bear Rail Riders, I believe. Is the I name. mean, sellouts left and right for A Rod. Sure, Scranton. Scranton. You just try to break them down. You send them to Scranton. The worst thing that happens is you sell out every game you have. Like, why wouldn't that work? Yeah, that yeah, that'd be fine. Make a little extra money from A Rod's contract, a couple a couple extra hundred thousand bucks. <laughs> sure. Sell some A Rod Scranton jerseys. The biggest thing to hit Scranton since Thunder Mifflin. Another thing I was thinking that they could do since the last time we talked, what if they just changed his number? Don't the teams control what the players' numbers are? Pro- oh, sure, yeah. They could give him whatever yeah. number they wanted, presumably. Like he's had 13 his whole career, right? Yeah. Just change it. Well, I don't Sorry, know. No, 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 no. He, was, he was number three with the Mariners, I believe, but he couldn't have number uh, three because it's Babe Ruth. Will you find out what his least favorite number is? He went with 13 out of a tribute to Dan Marino, I believe, and that was or that was his number as a high school quarterback. Hey, Dan Rod's Marino? Number. Yeah. What? Sure. Growing up in Miami, he was a big Marino guy, and that was the number he wore when he played high school quarterback. A-Rod played high school quarterback? He did, yeah. God, he would have been And Doug Minkiewicz was one of his receivers or tight ends or something. You mean Doug? I caught the the winning yep. winning uh, throw in the 2004 World Series. Doug Mankiewicz. That's the one. Yeah, apparently I don't remember that moment, but that's what I hear. You don't remember that moment? I don't. It was October 27, 2004. I'm sure there'll be a Doug Mankiewicz day at Fenway Park at some point this year, and it'll come back to me. Is there enough time for you to have grandkids to bounce on your lap during Bernie Williams night? <laughs> well, uh, since my, my oldest daughter is nine, I certainly hope not. Um, oh, yeah, that's too bad. I don't think that we're going to be grandchildren, grandparents by August now. Maybe, maybe somebody else's grandkids. Yeah, I can probably borrow some grandkids. Sure, I'll get my hands <laughs> on some grandkids to bounce on their knee and tell them about Bernie Williams' great moments. I can feel the emotion in the Yankee Stadium as Bernie Williams always, always an exciting, uh, charismatic guy. He's you know, it's locked down. out. You know, it's locked down in Vegas. Is he will play his guitar at some point during the ceremony. Oh. He will come out probably playing Take Me Out to the Ball Game or something on his own day. Interesting. I didn't yeah, even think no, about that's, that. Lock that down in Vegas. So which one, if you had to rank the three nights, which one are you, are you most excited for? I, I, I Can I guess? <laughs> Go ahead. You can guess. I think George Posada won. You always like Posada. You're always in his corner. You always I, I, felt like he was a little underrated. Yeah. Uh, Pettit two, Bernie Williams three. I yeah, don't think you were ever fully in them. You, you never fully trusted Bernie Williams in big moments. No, I was. I, I you know, Bernie's like a it was like a comfortable old shoe. It wasn't like it wasn't flashy. You know, you liked him, but he, I, I'm not going to be bouncing my grandkids on my knee talking about Bernie Williams. I'm, I'm ambivalent about yeah. him. Like I could take him or leave him. He was a good player. He had some big postseason moments. Nope, some big hits, but he's very understated, quiet. You know. Yeah. I, and it's funny, I never really, I used to really not like Posada because I thought he was a terrible catcher. Too many passed balls and just, just always frustrated me. But as his career went on, he really grew on me. And he really was the, he was the captain of the Yankees without having the C. He was the fiery guy that would yell back at Pedro and, you know, point at his head. Yeah. And Pedro pointed at his head and he would be a bench jockey. And, you know, Jeter was much more laid back than that. So Posada was really like the heart and soul of the Yankees. So. He did grow on me, and I always liked Andy Pettit. You know, he let me down in a lot of big moments as a pitcher, but 
you know, he was a solid, solid player. And, um, yeah, I can't kill Andy. I got to say, as your rival, I yeah. thought Pettit, Pettit was the best out of the three. I, I always felt like in big games, like those Sunday night games or even a playoff game, it was just like he just have those, you know, it'd be the fifth inning and you have three hits and one run. And it never felt like he was overpowering, but his pitches were always going and, you know, hitting the outside of the plate, just like six inches outside the spot where our guys like to hit it. Mm. And it's just how it went. He was really frustrated and rude against. Yeah. Um, so I, I would rank that. him first. I always felt like we could get Posada out. Um, Bernie Williams never put the fear of God on me. Posada got some big hits, though. He, he got a big hit in 2003 in Game 7. Oh, I'm not saying he didn't do oh, well. No, I'm, I'm just saying I always felt like we could get him out. Yeah. Whether we did was another was another thing. But, you know, and then Bernie Bernie was always these guys who seemed better on paper and you kept waiting for him to have like this awesome run of MVP, MVP level seasons. And I, I remember he hit like 340 one year, right? Didn't he? Yeah. He one yeah, monster year. Yeah. He had a very good year. But that was it. Was yeah. That, I mean, he, he was always was, solid. He doesn't have any magic numbers of like 500 home runs or – 3,000 hits or anything. I mean, he just was a, you know, good Yankee for a while. And from like the late eighties when they were awful till the two thousands when they were good. And he was, he was there for it, you know, but, and he had some moments, but I don't think he's an iconic Pantheon guy myself. Well, let me, let me throw this at you. This will cheer you up. Cause I know okay. you're secretly depressed about this whole thing. Well, first of all, I think they should have just done a core four retirement thing and then given Jeter his own thing as well. But, if you did it, if you did it as like we're retiring the core four, and you actually had a core four plaque and the whole yeah. thing, I think that would have made a lot more sense. Like going up together, you know, they yeah, came yeah, in yeah. together, went up there together, like what the Cowboys did with like, didn't they do Aikman and Smith and Irvin their Ring of yeah, Honor yeah, thing yeah. together? Like because yes. the guys that played together, you know, were known for as a group, right? Core four would have made more sense, but I think this now opens the door for Ricky Henderson night. <laughs> well, that's. I mean, you know, it's not more ridiculous than having Reggie Jackson's number retired. And nothing ever would be greater than Ricky Henderson. Day. Oh, absolutely. Ricky Henderson's number should be retired everywhere it possibly can be. <laughs> it should be. It should be. What number was he? He was, uh, I think he was, no, he was number 24 with the Yankees. Yeah, I, mean, I, think. I, I think that was his number for everybody. Yeah, that would be funny if they wiped it off the board like they did with Jackie Robinson. Just <laughs> nobody will ever surpass him from the intentional comedy standpoint. We, nobody's no longer allowed to wear his number. Just so he could give, you know, just give a speech in every stadium talking about himself in the third person. It would be great. Ricky's honored by this honor for Ricky. <laughs> can you imagine Rob Manfred? Is that the guy's name? The new yeah. commissioner? Rob Manfred. Sounds yeah. like, a, sounds like a, a character David Caruso would play. But uh, that would be his first order of business. It's like, well, yeah, we're going to deal with uh, the TV package and the internet, all that stuff later. Uh, PEDs, all that stuff. Right now, I'd like to announce uh, we're retiring Ricky Henderson's number across the board in both leagues, and there's going to be a Ricky Henderson night at every stadium. Everybody's in on Rob Manfred after that. Yeah, absolutely. Who doesn't like Ricky Henderson? Nobody. Nobody and, doesn't and, like Ricky Henderson. And I'll tell you another thing. Why we haven't done like a three-hour 30 for 30 about Ricky Henderson is one of the great mysteries of life. Because <laughs> I don't know who doesn't watch that. It's like the Randy Moss thing. Like we knew people were going to watch the Randy Moss thing. Sure. Ricky Henderson would get eyeballs and ratings. No question. You can get on that. You should get on that. Yeah. All right, Johnny. All right, buddy. Um, go back to work. 
We'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. Congratulations again on on Bernie Night and Posada Night and Pettit Night. It's great. Absolutely. Tears in my eyes. I know. I know. All right. Talk to you soon. See you, buddy. Bye. Thank you for downloading the BS Report with Bill Simmons. Too much fun. Check out more podcasts at the iTunes Music Store or at Podcenter at ESPNRadio.com. Peace out.